1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Terry Iverson about his book, Finding America's Greatest Champion, Building Prosperity Through Manufacturing, Mentoring, and the Awesome Responsibility of Parenting. Terry, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Trevor. I really, really appreciate it.
1: I'd like to begin our conversation by giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Okay. Uh, my name is Terry Iverson and I am an Illinois resident. I am a, um, a, a husband of 40 years and a father of three and a grandfather of six, soon to be seven. And my family has been in manufacturing and specifically, uh, we have a company. Uh, my family's been in manufacturing since the 1920 and specifically, uh, my family and myself. I have a machine tool uh, distribution and rebuilding business, which we employ about 14, 15 people. And this is my 40th year in the business. So how did you come
1: to write uh, Finding America's Greatest Champion?
0: Well, the the, the short version of the long buildup or the long story to answer that is probably about 15 years into my career, I realized that customers kept complaining about the lack of skilled workers for them to hire. I would sell them a machine tool and they would kiddingly say, does an operator or a programmer come with that machine? So I got about 15 years in, so to speak, I got more involved in the technical education side. And that led to me getting involved in advisory boards at community colleges and technical, technical colleges, and then ultimately uh, advisory boards in high schools and that employed Project Lead the Way and, and other uh, STEM-related type education. And then I got on some national boards, one in Washington, DC for the CTE Education uh, Foundation, and then also one in Florida uh, for about nine years, uh, Florida Advanced Technical Education, and and then uh, ultimately, I, I spoke in Washington to the Small Business um, Committee of the House of Representatives about the same type of topics. And finally, when I got to the point where I was so invested in in this this um, subject matter, I realized that I really would be ashamed to waste all this information and not do something with it. So I started writing down my thoughts and that ultimately led me to, um, to writing the book.
1: I can understand, uh, how having a skilled workforce requires, um, thinking critically about education and training. Um, I was also interested in your focus on mentoring and parenting. And so uh, what are the roles of mentoring and parenting in helping to foster a skilled workforce?
0: Well, I I took a, what I call a deep dive into what I feel we need to do in this country to get back to where our young people can realize opportunities that they don't know exist. And I've spent, you know, I I mentioned in my introduction that, you know, children and my family are important to me and I have three adult children and, and now quite a few grandchildren and. Mentoring, when I was a young person, uh, I grew up in Florida. My father was in Illinois, and so I always was very fortunate to have either coaches or teachers or family friends mentor me. So as a young man growing up with a single parent with my mom, uh, it was very critical that I had people advising me and guiding me because we we all need help in that regard in terms of parenting you know i think uh parenting is obviously i think is one of the most precious gifts that that we're we're given uh those of us that choose to be parents and so uh i think it's critically important especially when you have either a divorce situation or a divided home and or if you have you know two parents working that it becomes very a lot more complicated to be a parent and to be a good parent, but the reason I, I wrote about it is they're both very important to me, and I feel that the better job we can do in parenting and mentoring our own young people and other young people that I think that our society as a whole in um, our path either into careers or education or both for our young for our youth uh, can be a lot more uh, effective and a lot more productive uh, long term.
1: What qualities do you think make a good mentor or a good parent? For those of us who aspire to be better in those we're supporting, uh, what advice would you have for us?
0: Well, I think anybody that signs up either directly or indirectly uh, to be a mentor has an altruistic intent to, you know help someone other than themselves. Uh, When you mentor a young person, uh, whether it's your child or someone else's child, uh, or in my case, I did a lot of travel, soccer, coaching, and so I mentored a lot of young athletes. And so, you know, you need to have the the intent of putting your, your skills and your talent and your time out for the greater good of someone other than yourself, even though you do get a lot out of it. As far as a good parent, I mean, I I think, first of all, I think it goes without saying that, you know, 100% of the parents love their children. And so I think that's the first thing that makes a good parent is that they love their child, which is uh, very obvious. But sometimes a parent doesn't understand and doesn't uh, realize that by trying to be their child's friend or by trying to raise their child out of guilt and doing things for the child that makes themselves feel better, that many times that leads to not holding the child accountable and growing into a a responsible adult and a productive citizen of our country or of, of society. And so sometimes it's very hard to make the hard decisions as a parent, and I think in this in this country based on what I've seen. I think too many of us are are, uh, parenting out of guilt and not holding our children accountable for their actions and learning the lessons that they need to learn as they grow into adults.
1: Now, if every child had a mentor or a parent who was um, offering advice and um, holding those children accountable, what would be the role of our school system ideally to help prepare a workforce um, that's competent enough to do the the work you would be asking them to do
0: that's a good question and I think if at home the child was being parented and mentored in an idealistic scenario and getting the most out of that relationship and that model, that would allow the school system and the and the teachers uh, in the classes, to focus on not only being college ready but also being career ready. And so, consequently, um, I'll talk about guidance counselors for a minute. Guidance counselors rarely get a chance to do what their intended, their function uh, is intended to be. Uh, there's a lot of behavioral issues, and there's a lot of uh, disciplinary things that are done that end up in in a guidance counselor uh, role or in a teacher's role, which is, you know, terribly unfair. Um, At the same time, the guidance counselors, I mean, there should be two or three different levels of guidance counselors, the way education is right now. But unfortunately there isn't. So guidance counselors don't, and educators in general, don't get a chance to really understand the movement in the marketplace in the movement in in the job market and what we need and so consequently they continue down a path that they think is right for all the young people and in reality it's only
1: it's only good for just a portion of the students that they serve what are the qualities you're looking for when you're hiring people for your team
0: i spend a lot of time on character and work ethic and honesty and uh, sometimes We pay attention to just a certain skill set, and I look beyond that, and I look at the person and what they're made of and what they believe in, and I think that has a lot to do with finding a true champion, either at the time or a future champion.
1: Do you find that you're able to uh, develop those kinds of qualities within your team after you've hired them?
0: Well, i think you can develop you can certainly develop people that come into your into your culture in your company and with older employees that are tenured for we have people that have been at our company for 40 plus years they're more than willing and able to mentor and uh tutor uh, young people in the company and develop them i i think what's hard to develop it's it's hard to develop someone to be honest, it's hard to develop someone to, you know, have a good work ethic. So I, I really feel that, you know, skills and, and, uh, you know, if a certain person has an aptitude to learn, uh, I think that's important, but some of the the basic characteristics are going to be really hard to change who a person is into something different. So I think it's important to look at their character, um, you know, the work ethic, you know, whether they're honest uh, or not, or, or try to be honest and, and follow through. Uh, but critical thinking skills is one of the biggest needs that all of the companies that I, I deal with in, all, in our company. And that's something that's lacking in, in education that, you know, in students are learning subject matter, but they're not learning as much critical thinking skills. And some of this is, is the educational system, but some of this is also uh, generational and, and differences in the different generations uh, you know, uh, over time. So yes, I think people can de- be developed, but I think how someone is made and what type of person they are and what they believe in in their core, that's hard to change. I think you need to look for that and, and look for what you want uh, in your culture, in your company, and then develop them from there.
1: How do you try and assess whether someone has critical thinking skills or a good character um, when you're engaged in the hiring process?
0: Well, I think there's, you know, it's, I, do, I speak to a lot of young people, and I try to see how their interview skills and how their ability to engage with uh, somebody in the workforce is and this latest generation and the millennials and, and all the, the generations after the millennials are, are having a tough time engaging uh, and having good inter- interview skills so that being said it makes it a lot harder to determine whether or not a person has the characteristics that you want And so you become, and I become more of an advocate for internships because in a regular interview process, you really can't determine, uh, if they have the qualities or characteristics of, uh, as an individual that you, that you're looking for in a, in a short or shortened interview process, whereas an internship allows you either, you know, weeks or, or days consecutively for them to understand what your culture is, what your job and in your career needs are, uh, or a person to fit into. And then vice versa. You can also, um, they can find out if it's the type of uh, job or the type of, uh,
1: career that they're even interested in. Your book, uh, contains reflections from your own career. It also is, it- Draws on the reflections of many other leaders from around the country. Um, you conducted many interviews to write this book. Can you talk a little bit about your process for conducting interviews?
0: Well, once I once I started writing down the notes um, when I first started writing, I, I didn't really even consider it to be a book when I first started. It was just about forty to fifty thousand words of of experiences, and then I had the idea that. I really have gotten to know a lot of very fascinating either friends or family or uh, acquaintances in the 40 years in in my career. And I thought, you know, through one of the three different subject matters, either manufacturing, mentoring, or parenting, each one of them can fit into that slot and speak to different components of the book. So I chose about 50 people to interview. Uh, I believe, at last count, nine of them, I had to introduce myself to the balance, of the 40, you know, plus 41 people, either I knew already, or they were friends or, or relatives, uh, or acquaintances. And so uh, I ended up having a uh, half hour phone call, I limited it to a half hour, and I recorded it. And then I had the, the recording transcribed. And so uh, that It's the first book I've written, and it's the first time I took on 50 interviews in a short period of time. And for me, that worked very well. And then once I transcribed it, I had more than enough information. In fact, I ended up at somewhere around 160,000 words at that point. And then I had to digest it and edit it down to what was pertinent to fit into the subject matter of the book.
1: Could you share a little bit of history as, of manufacturing in this country, as well as how our system of manufacturing compares to other countries around the world?
0: Well, that that is a very deep uh, question, and uh, and I will do my best. Um, I think my man, my family uh, got involved in manufacturing in about the nineteen twenties. In about the nineteen twenties, in the U.S., uh, I think it was Buick had developed. One of the first unified assembly lines in Michigan, it became the largest and most efficient car assembly uh, factory in the world in the 1920s uh, in the 1930s the the term lean manufacturing came into be uh, developed, and as it turns out, Japan adopted it way way before the u s did and then eventually in the 1990 s and 2000s it came back and the u s uh, took on lean manufacturing um in terms of uh um the jet engine was developed in the 1940s Um, robots were you know initially developed back in the 1970s Um, when you get up to the 1980s that's when i got into manufacturing and we were just starting to get into what they called computerized numerical controlled machines so um over the years, there's been more uh, automation in the US that's been developed and absorbed and, and uh, accepted. Um, part of that is, is because of the cost of labor, but part of that is uh, because of the lack of skilled labor. Um, the, the analogy that I'll parlay over to, uh, with, and I'll pick Germany, is that uh, in Europe, there's much more of an apprenticeship Uh, model that's that's continuing to this day in our country we had apprenticeships but over time as manufacturing was being challenged from a uh costing standpoint and a competitive standpoint a lot of those apprenticeship programs were either dropped or uh, pushed aside in germany and switzerland and specifically the culture for apprenticeships um is still in, in, in existence. And usually a company that has an apprenticeship model, 10% of their employment will, will be what their uh, enrollment is with an apprentice program. If they have 200 employees, then they'll have 20 apprentices. The other thing that's unique in Germany or Europe, uh, Germany and Switzerland and Europe in general, is that the craftsmen and the skilled workers are held in very high regard. And they're uh, honored and respected and, and, and considered to be really uh, good-paying and honorable professions. Um, somewhere along the line in our country, um, somebody said at one point that manufacturing was totally going away and that we would be a service-based economy. And so as a result, a lot of the high school programs closed down their technical programs. Uh, The apprenticeship programs started closing down. And and we really lost like almost a generation or two in the manufacturing sector. Now what's happening is the German-American Chamber of Commerce is bringing back the apprenticeship model. Uh, Our culture is still having a tough time, uh, you know, swinging the other direction, so to speak. And there's a lot of high school programs that are opening up uh technical colleges and community colleges expanding manufacturing programs so you know that's a whole difference between uh europe and and the u.s culture and one of the reasons i wrote the book is to assist in helping change our culture to be more accepting of manufacturing positions and manufacturing careers
1: And uh, how do you think that that may benefit our society if the manufacturing sector were to grow again and uh, more students would be drawn to manufacturing careers? Um, How might uh, our entire society benefit from those kinds of changes?
0: Well, it's interesting. If we had had this interview uh, three months ago, I would have an answer, but I wouldn't have as um, relative or relevant of an answer as I do now um manufacturing in this country for a long long time has been responsible for our middle class and manufacturing as a whole in a country is responsible for prosperous uh economy and that is not just in our country it's been in other countries all around the world so of late with the covid-19 crisis that we're in the middle of i think we've become very uh, aware that we have a, a definite uh, void in being able to quickly ramp up and address or manufacture towards the need. Um, there's been different components since we've been in this crisis of, uh, you know, health related, um, whether it be ventilators or masks or a lot of different things. We've had to reach out beyond our shores to get products uh, to be able to respond quickly so having a capacity and a capability of manufacturing uh, at large scales and very quickly is very important and i think part of what we're contending in this crisis about is is in part about that but i think in whole uh, a friend of mine uh, a very good friend of mine harry Mosier, developed a, a initiative called the Reshoring movement And his whole premise is that if you're making things abroad and you really look at the cost and the opportunity loss, the intellectual property that's, that's that's given away and stolen uh, the lag time and the responsiveness that having things made abroad uh, overseas is not really as attractive as it might initially appear to be. So the reshoring initiative is to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Uh, After getting to know Harry probably 15 years ago, I realized that if he was effective, which he is, and I think the crisis that we're going through will even bring more manufacturing back, well, that means that we need more skilled workers. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book and, and founded a 501c3 called Champion Now Was to be an advocate for manufacturing careers and to educate students, parents, and uh, and educators themselves about the opportunities that exist and will exist in the future because of manufacturing being a great career and the need is so vast.
1: You you mentioned that we're recording this conversation during uh, April 2020, and uh, with the COVID-19 lockdowns in place, as I've followed the news, one thing I've been interested in as a layperson is how uh, some clothing manufacturers are changing over to produce masks in, in the way that uh, companies that produce cars began making uh, warplanes during World War II. I-, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that process might work. How does a one manufacturing company go from producing one item to producing something that's similar in some ways, but seemingly different in so many other ways.
0: Well, one thing that people probably underestimate and don't understand about Americans or the, or the US in general, and, and Americans, is that there's a lot of ingenuity and there's a lot of uh, can-do uh, in manufacturing. Uh, so people that have a certain skill set in, in in their companies and in their uh, institutions are able to parlay that over into something different. Now, I must say that not having the amount of skilled workers that you would like to have adds a different element of challenge to that. Okay, so you know the more difficult time you have hiring skilled workers and keeping up with production, and then all of a sudden, you have to turn on a dime and go into something different. That's something that this country does very well. And history has proven that. Uh, manufacturers have had to adapt over, you know, their entire careers and, and their entire livelihood. So that's really not unique, but it does take time and it does take a, uh, a focus. And we're. Very very fortunate in that regard. Not not all manufacturers or not all countries can do that as well as, as people in the U.S.
1: Are there other common misunderstandings about manufacturing that that you'd like to address?
0: Well, when I when I formulated and founded my 501c3, uh, which is called Champion Now, uh, Champion Now Champion is an acronym for for me, and that's uh, the title of the book has Champion in it because of this. But CHAMPION stands for Change How American Manufacturing is Perceived in Our Nation. And the now is the call to action. So from a perception standpoint, you know, it's very difficult for parents and grandparents and even educators to understand how manufacturing has changed in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and 40 years. If you go back 40 years, automation and computerization was not very prevalent in the U.S. in manufacturing. So there's a, a preconceived notion that manufacturing is dangerous. It's dirty. It's dark, and it's uh, it's dingy. And a lot of the manufacturing companies uh, in this country and in around the world are very well lit. They're very safe. Although there there is a, a can be a dangerous component that's why it has everything has to be very safely monitored and safeties need to be in place on automated equipment but it's also a very good paying profession I think uh, the latest number that with benefits the average manufacturing employee earns with benefits about eighty two thousand dollars a year so the perceptions being that Many people don't understand how things have evolved and how computers and automation has changed manufacturing careers and manufacturing in general for the better. Much of what's written in the media and publicized are the jobs that leave the U.S. and go abroad. And many of the measurements in this country are only measured by number of employees. And you can look at numbers many different ways, and you can interpret many different ways. But if you look at the uh, amount of percentage the manufacturing is responsible for GDP uh, in our country, and if you can uh, look at that, and I think we have close to somewhere around 11 to 12 plus million uh, employees or workers in manufacturing positions, And, uh, and the fact that there's somewhere between 600,000 short-term and uh, 2.5 million uh, positions in manufacturing that need to be filled over the next 10-plus years. Uh, those are things that people just don't realize. I tell young people that, look, if, if manufacturing is not for you, that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality of it is very few, less than 5 to 10%, of young people even know that it's an option, much less a, a great pain option.
1: Were there particular moments, watershed moments in, Amer- in the last 50 years of American history that you attribute to causing that change in perception of American manufacturing?
0: Hmm, wow. Um, I think that in this country, I think there were some times, you know, when we first started saying that we were going to be a service-based economy, that was a moment that started the pendulum going the wrong direction, in my opinion. The The other thing that happened is in some of the economic downturn, maybe, 80, you know, 83, I can remember very vividly, uh, inflation was terrible, interest rates were 21%, um, and so In 1983, computerization was just getting started in manufacturing in this country. And so consequently, a lot of the apprenticeships, you know, a lot of the talk was service-based economy. A lot of the talk, a lot of the uh, things were closed down, some of the uh, manufacturing uh, in trade schools and even in high schools and community colleges, some of those were were being diminished or... or, um, some of them were closed down entirely. And that's, I think, when we started to get away from uh, manufacturing as we know it. And, and our culture started to shift. And that truly, and, and our education started to shift also. And we're we're now just getting to the point where we're starting to get the pendulum to be pushed back the other direction.
1: If readers could have just one takeaway from your book, what would you hope it to be?
0: Well, I think the takeaway that I hope people would get from the book is that manufacturing, a manufacturing career path can be a great opportunity for their young person or if they are a young person. Too many people try to go down the college route and they either don't learn the prototypical way where they can't afford to go down the four-year degree route, or they sign up for uh, all sorts of student loans, and then they come out of college, and then you find out that the market, uh, with the degree that they have, isn't necessarily um, waiting with open arms for a good-paying career. So now they, they have to pay back their college loan. Uh, obviously, they need to get a job, but sometimes they can't. They have a degree that isn't useful to them or to the marketplace and so the takeaway is that to look at manufacturing and and to also consider that part of the the process is that we also need to mentor and educate and parent our children better Um, and and maybe a small percentage of that uh, ends up in manufacturing but A large percentage of our young people will become critical thinkers. They'll be in a profession that excites them and their path to success will be because it was carefully thought out. I don't think we do enough internships in this country. I think that that's an ideal opportunity for not only for young people to really understand what they enjoy and what they like, but also understand what, excites them, and they can be very productive in, in a career. That's one thing in Europe, the culture is such that young people are challenged much earlier than our young people are challenged. So they figure out what they want to do as a career set way before it comes time to go to college. I think our parenting role model is, or our parenting model is telling our young people, look, go to college and figure out what you want to do. And I take exception to that. And I say, you know what, let's in high school, sophomore, junior, senior year, get our young people engaged in internships so that they have an idea of what they don't like and don't want to do and what they do like. And then uh, their path, it may be a four year degree or it may be a community college or it may be right into the workforce.
1: Well, Terry, we're almost out of time, so I wanted to ask you just a couple of more questions. First, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners who have enjoyed yours and enjoyed our conversation today? Well,
0: there's three books that I would recommend that have a lot of the same subject matter, uh, maybe not as much in the mentoring and parenting uh, segue, but one is called Dream Differently by Vince Bertrand. Vince is... President of Project Lead the Way, and uh, I interviewed him for the book. He's he's uh, quoted in the book, and his was his book was published in 2017, and so that talks a lot about a career path versus a um, a college path, and it, it challenges you know young people to just like the title says, dream differently. The second was one that I researched. It was by Thomas J. Snyder. It was published in 2016. And it's called the Community College Solution. Uh, Thomas Schneider was the president of Ivy Tech uh, College System in Indiana. And so um, that talks, speaks to some of the things that I speak about in the book about, you know, what's the right education. I mean, all of our young people need to be educated, but each individual, each young person needs the right education for them. So that would be one that I would recommend. And then a number of years ago, there was a woman from Canada by the name of Karen Lindner. And she published a book that she actually interviewed me for a small component in it in 2012. And her book is called, How Can We Make Manufacturing Sexy? And it speaks to the point that the image of manufacturing is not what it should be. And so she speaks to that in the book and, and really changes people's perceptions about what manufacturing careers are.
1: Finally, can you tell us a little bit about your next project and how we can follow your work?
0: Well, my next project, what I hope to do is to break the book that I have already written that's already out uh, and available, which is about 304 pages, and break it into four smaller books. Uh, My hope is at the end of this year, early 2021, have a book for students, a book for parents, a book for educators, and a book for industry members. And then I would probably invite two to three new interviews for each book, so there's new content. And then also, uh, I plan to have a workbook component in each one of the books. So if I'm a student, I can go through and I can you know, fill out uh, ideas and questions so that I, you know, look at a path for that's for me, and the same thing for a parent as they're looking at helping their child or their grandchild, as the case may be, and then an industry member can go through and understand how to get engaged uh, with the educational sector, and then the educators, you know, a workbook component for them as well, and uh, as far as following my work. My champion Now website is championnow.org and there's two ends champion. and then now there's two ends in it dot org and I have uh, podcasts, videos, uh, articles I've written uh, and all sorts of uh, events that I've spoke at um, and everything as well as the book is uh, on that website and then the book is available in uh, hardback. Paperback, audiobook, and ebook. Uh, So I've tried to make it available in all different formats.
1: Terry, that all sounds great. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I enjoyed our conversation very much.
0: Thanks for having me, Trevor, and I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.